Hello and welcome to episode 288 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today is a little bit different to normal. On Saturday, Bob from the Twisted Britain podcast came to my house here in sunny Pitlockery and we recorded an episode together. And this week, here is the episode we recorded. I'll be back to normal next week, but I hope you enjoy something a bit different. And until we speak again next week, stay classy. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Twisted Britain, a podcast in True Crime Britain with a twisting, a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. I can't say my words this evening, but that's all right because we're here with a special episode of Twisted Britain. It's Twisted Britain, but not as you knew it, Jim. I'm joined not by the wonderful Alistair, as always, but this time I have the genuine pleasure of being joined by Adam from the UK True Crime Podcast. Good afternoon, good evening, good day. Adam, how are you? Hey, Bob. Great to be here again. Um, thanks very much for joining us. This time we, you can actually hear the dogs in the background. That's not even just the, the, the theme tune playing longer. That's pretty cool. Um, we're, we're, we're not in the pub this time. It's a very weird experience for me. We're not in a pub recording a podcast. So we're going to make up for it by going to the pub later on. But we are, um, Adam has kindly invited me up to record a couple of episodes. So we're doing one, uh, in Twisted Britain format and we're doing one in UK true crime format, but with me just going, What's that mean? <laughs> uh, most of the way through it. So hopefully you'll enjoy both these episodes to come. I've made a, a journey north up the A9 to get here. Um, and I tell you that specifically because it relates to the case I'm about to tell you about. But before I get to that, I do want to say a big thank you for having us up here and recording with you. We've been talking about this for probably a year or so, uh, about doing something together. And you were kind to come down to the pub before. And this is us doing a proper episode, I would say. Shall we, shall we call it that? Absolutely. So if, in case you don't know, we're recording at my house, me and Bob. We're recording a couple of episodes. And then most importantly, we're off to the pub. Yeah, we are, because that's where I normally do my recording. So this is uh, we're backfilling this. <laughs> um, I suppose for anybody who's listening to uh, UK True Crime, I suppose I should maybe tell you who I am before, rather than that, anything else. Yeah, jump in, Bob. I am Bob and one half of uh, the Twisted Britain podcast. Um, normally, Ali and I, who is my co-host, talk about historical crime cases or, or the weird, we call it the weird, the wonderful and the macabre. This is what we cover. And um, when you got in touch, you said, maybe not quite so historic, I think. But I've gone very modern for Twisted Britain, but maybe quite historic for yourself. So we'll meet in the middle somewhere. How does that feel for you? It sounds good to me, Bob. Um, so I'll jump straight in. Mm. So with it in mind of having not too historic, I kind of did my normal searches around the interweb to see what I would come up with. And this, I think, is something that fits both uh, UK True Crime and Twisted Britain. It's a case that uh, that happened in the 1970s, and there has been an update recently, and it is going to appear in court again this year. So we've got a 43-year time period on this on this case. This is the case of the disappearance of Renee McRae and her son, Andrew McRae, who was only three years old at the time of the incident. 
This currently stands as Scotland's longest missing persons case. And I say currently for a reason that we will get onto in a bit. The reason I chose this for us today is I have literally, as I say, less than an hour ago, been on the road that Rini was last seen on. Rini and Andrew were on their way to visit her sister in Kilmarnock, and I was on my way to visit you. Since I've joined you, I thought I'd give you some context. Yeah. The time period I'm talking about. Uh, the fateful day that Andrew and Rini go missing was the 12th of November, 1977. The top of the UK charts was Mississippi by Pussycat. Uh, in the US, it was the Steve Miller Band, and it was the same year that Steve Jobs founded Apple and the amazing Sylvester Stallone released the first Rocky movie. Ah, oh, classic. And it's only two days after Leeds drew 1-1 at home to Stoke. I don't know if that's a good thing. I don't <laughs> do football. I know. We take a good 1-1 any day now. <laughs> I think they were playing Manchester United the following week and might have beaten them. So they are. I uh, find that hard to believe. But, yep, that's good. Um, anyway. I digress slightly, but uh, we get back to Rini. Rini was born Christina Catherine MacDonald in Bewley in Inverness, where she lived with her mother and father and her sister Morag. She had a pretty good life as a young girl and in the, uh, in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, when she was in her teens, she met her future husband, Gordon McRae. He was a few years older than her and his family was considerably better off than hers. Gordon's father ran a pretty successful building company in the north of Scotland, and Gordon had joined the firm at the time of his and Rini's meeting. In 1963, we have the wedding of Rini MacDonald and Gordon McRae, and they have a happy marriage to begin with. Not long after taking a role in his father's business, Gordon soon took over from his father, turning what was a pretty good business into an absolutely stonking one, with turnover in the millions every year, which in the 1970s is like all the money. Yeah. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Especially in the northeast of Scotland. You're talking, um, you know, it's an oil boom town mm. in the, the late 80s through to now, really. But at this time, it wasn't that. The, the oil industry there wasn't quite as big as it was. So doing that kind of money is he would have been one of the influential people of the area. Okay. So Rini married into what was a pretty happy life. Mm. Um, they basically wanted for nothing. And in 1968, Rini gave birth to their first son, Gordon Jr. Sadly, it's at this point that we see a bit of strain happening on the marriage. And as always, it tends to be with money. And I know I've just finished saying they were pretty well off, but Gordon was enjoying the lifestyle that went with being pretty well off. And there was some rocky bits and pieces that go around with that. There were other things going on in the marriage, but nevertheless, Rini gives birth to their second son in 1973, Andrew. And please do I note, I didn't say their second son, I say her second son. Ah. Rini, during this rocky part of their marriage, had been having a wee behind-the-scenes fling, shall we call it, with another man by the name of Bill McDowell. Bill was actually a secretary-slash-accountant, but he worked for the building firm that Gordon ran. Um, so... I don't think I would have to pull it too much to make the stretch that we're probably all getting to that Andrew was, in fact, the son of Rini and Bill. Yeah. So here we are with the background set, and we skip on to 1976. Rini and Gordon were no longer in a happy state at all. In fact, the pair were no longer living together, having split up the, the, the year before. Rini has the boys at the house in Cradle Hall, which is just in the outskirts of Inverness, um, in a house that Gordon had bought for them. So whilst they weren't estranged from each other, there was no malice that I could see in the relationship. He certainly didn't hate her in any way, and he bought this house for her. So they were 
They'd fallen out of love and were friends again. Let's go with. So, so there was no catalyst that brought on the split that you could find out about. I think the catalyst was specifically the money problems, or the money usage problems, shall we say? Yeah. And my conjecture is he probably knew she was having a bit of a fling. Yeah. But fell out of love seems to have been the kind of overall feeling here. So. What I suppose a lot of people do is wait till the kids leave, you know, and then disappear off in this and in, in these scenarios. But they seem to have just gone. Do you know what? We were better as friends. Yeah. Um. And as I say, no malice there at all. He was, you know, ran a successful building firm, and I would either I don't think he built the house she stayed in, but she certainly gifted it to her for her use with the boys. And it probably being the seventies, it would have been a given that the boys went and stayed with her mum. Yeah. So Rini has this house in Cradle Hall, which I've never been to Cradle Hall, but I had a wee Google Maps tour of the town, and it looks lovely. I'm, I may one day make it that far, but um, yeah, nice wee place to live. So, as I said, just on the outskirts of Inverness, and Gordon stayed in the big house in the middle of the town. Okay. So the morning of the 12th of November started probably like most others for Rini. She took Gordon Jr. to school in the morning before meeting friends for a coffee. Later in the afternoon... Rini returns to the school to pick up Gordon Jr. and take him to his father's office and drop him there, supposedly for him to spend the weekend with his dad. What we can't account for here is what happens in the next wee while. Was there a plan in Rini's head? As far as we know, she leaves Inverness that day at around 5pm, and this would be the last time anyone would see her or Andrew ever again. Usually, I would say this is the last time anyone would see them alive, but in this instance, it's the last time anyone would see them at all. Maybe the plan in Rini's head was, you know, I'll just run away. But the plan that she told to her estranged husband, Gordon, was that she was going to visit her sister in Kilmarnock. Now, Kilmarnock is uh, about a three and a half hour jaunt from Inverness down yeah. through the south of Glasgow. And it would take in the whole length of the A9, joining the M9, M8 onto Glasgow. So they would pass both very close to where we are here. And very, very close to where my where I live here, which is why I thought this is a nice wee thread here. Yeah. The A9, uh, for any of you who are listening that don't know, is the longest road in Scotland. It's currently going through a dual carriageway upgrade and stuff like that. But up until about, oh, I'm talking, driving it from personal experience, up until about five or ten years ago, it was a single, tra- a single carriageway road from Perth to Inverness with laybys on it. Bob, you're sounding very Adam Partridge. I'm getting there, aren't I? <laughs> it's one of these roads. So I used to drive it to go to the ski slopes up in the Cairngorms, and I f- ah. fucking hate that road. Excuse my language on somebody else's podcast, but it's just one. And I can picture the drive she's doing, especially with the laybys. And the laybys will uh, become quite a prominent thing, just a uh, moment hence. And was, was she close to her sister? So growing up, her and her sister were, that, that was it in the family. There was the mum, dad, and the two sisters. Her sister Morag was like her best pal growing up. So she would, for her to go to see her in Kilmarnock wasn't a, uh, an out of the blue thing. She would have done that. For Rini to have driven that far on her own, uh, coming from a reasonably wealthy family and not have just got the train to Glasgow is a bit of a push. There's, there's a point where she leaves here and Gordon goes to check and see if, um, has she used the car? It's an interesting question because it is a long drive. Mm. Um, and would you want to do it with a three-year-old on your own? I certainly wouldn't. 
Um, but off she off she sets anyway. Yeah. The important part about the A9 is that it not only passes where we are just now, but it passes Perth. And Perth was the home of a man. A man by the name of Bill McDowell. The very Bill that Rennie had been having an affair with. The very Bill who the previous weeks and months had told Rennie that he had a new job with Texaco in Shetland. That very Bill had told Rennie that he would leave his wife for her. And the very man who was indeed the father of her second son. So maybe she was going to see her sister. Or maybe she was running away with said man to Shetland. In her head anyway, that's where she says she was. And at 5pm on the 12th of November 1976, Rini sets off south. The A9 runs directly through Inverness, so she would have been pretty quickly on it. And that's it. That's all of the movements of Rini that I can account for until this to, the, to this very day. So no sightings of the car at all? There's no, there is no sightings of Rini. There are sightings of the car, as you say. I would like to run through briefly a list of facts of what happened in the, in the following few days. Around five hours later, in Layby 162, which is about 12 miles south of Inverness, a bus driver by the name of Colm McGregor spotted flames coming from behind the embankment. On inspection, he found a burning blue BMW. This was obviously reported to the police, who had also had a call from the Glasgow to Inverness train, who had reported seeing flames as they passed. On arriving in the area, the police find an empty, charred car with no sign of anyone at all. All they find is a blood-stained rug in the boot. When the police traced the car, it was registered to none other than Gordon McRae. And when they tested the blood type, because obviously we're talking DNA testing here, it was found to be the same blood type as Rini and Andrew. And that's it. That's all the police had to go on. That's where the investigation starts as such. The police launched their inquiries and a woman by the name of Valerie Stevenson, who was one of the women Rini had had met for coffee earlier in the day, came forward to the police, letting them know of her true intentions. She was indeed travelling south that day to meet with Bill McDowell. So, as you can imagine, the police clearly wanted a word or three with Bill. Um, when he was interviewed by the police, he explained in a, a rather elaborate way of messaging that him and Rini had with each other. They used to communicate by using phone rings as a kind of tool. Now, it took me a while to get my head around what that actually meant. So what I understand is she would phone and let it ring for a number of rings, three or four rings, and then hang up and then instantly phone back. And he would know that that four rings was a signal that it was him. It was for him from her, sorry. Yeah. And if he didn't answer, she knows he wasn't there and he would, but he would tend to answer on the second letter rings. And that was his way of getting around the whole affair. This is one thing I never understand with affairs, Bob. You know, I can't manage my life day to day as it is. All these complexities that you're bringing in your life, it's so difficult, right? I've just had to fix a plumbing problem from an hour and a half away. I can't be bothered with an affair. That sounds much, much harder work. Um, I can't, yeah, I can't sneak out for a pint without a known. So, um, so they have this elaborate way of messaging each other. Um, and he had received a couple of these calls in the days after Rini's car was found. So as far as he was concerned, she was still alive. Why Why would they be questioning him? Police found it a bit weird, but they can't really argue with that. If he's had a phone call, fine. Oh, and his wife. Bill's wife had a really sound alibi. He was with her at the time that they'd found the car. So he was pretty much accepted at face value, and they moved on to investigating the area. 
So divers searched Lenach Quarry, Funtac Burn, Loch Moy, the River Findhorn, and found nothing. The whole area surrounding the layby, uh, layby 162, which is very rural if you look at it, it's 12 miles south of Inverness, but it's in the middle of nowhere. Okay. They were searched by land, by a massive volunteer public force, and drafted in police force. All the leave was cancelled. They brought everybody in. They had the local military looking. They even had the RAF aerially surveying the area, taking photographs to see if they could find anything. So why was this so big? Why was this story so big at the time, do you think? Um, rich, estranged woman goes missing. All you find is a flaming car. Yeah. Great paper headline, isn't it? It's mm. it's one of those ones that sells its story without you having to do anything. Yeah. I would probably say that if the bodies had been in the car, this would have gone no further. Car accident or whatever. But that was the interesting thing, actually, when they found the car, there was no sign of damage to it at all. Or the only damage to the car was the fact that it was on fire. She hadn't been in an accident. She hadn't. So loads of things kind of get ruled out at that point. It hasn't been a hit and run and drive away. She hadn't smashed the car into something to try and commit suicide. You know, yeah. There's loads of wee bits that you go, oh, it could have been this or it could have been that. But Rini was a fairly sound person. Like She had a good mindset. She didn't know uh, history of mental illness. So so I think that's probably all these, the easy outs are gone. So it makes it more of a wonderful paper seller. Mm. And that's, uh, you know, especially in what would have been a much smaller place than it is now in the north of Scotland, that story sticks. Yeah. The fact that they managed to get a volunteer force from the public come out, I think, says a lot about why this was... People were just intrigued. It's that true crime fan mentality, isn't it? I've talked about it on, on Twisted Britain many a time. Back in the day, tens of thousands of people would go and watch a hanging. Yeah. yeah. You know, tens of thousands of people love to listen to sitting on a train somewhere listening to somebody talk about true crime. We know that. But this was, you know, this was a version of that, I suppose. You know, the intrigue that goes with it. And also, um, it's one of my pet points about local newspapers. So back then, the local newspaper was the fulcrum for news. People got all their news from there. I don't know about you, but when I go on local newspapers now, I don't want to take a survey. I don't want to take a quiz. Get rid of those blasted adverts. You can see why their circulation is falling, right? Oh, absolutely. And um, I mean, they take the Sterling Observer, for instance, which would have been the local rag where we are. And I think it's been taken over by the Daily Mail now. And it's just, as you say, it's adverts. And you don't get the wee snippet stories about wee joke down the road that's done something cool. It's mm. just gone, isn't it? Mm. Whereas where we're talking about this, this is peak circulation for newspapers, yeah. really, isn't it? And yeah. the, uh, sorry, late 70s, early 80s, you, you couldn't move for newspaper being printed. It was, there's times we've talked about on cases where there's two newspapers delivered a day to some houses mm. with the, the morning news and the evening news. It, this was, as you say, this was the, the, the focal point for getting your... Thing and, and and a media headline like this is an absolute goldmine for for a writer, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So as I say, the 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 area was searched quite forensically. Uh, I think is probably the, the the right adjective to use, including these aerial surveys. One of the places that was looked at was Dalmangari Quarry, where it was noted that there was a few recent disturbances in the earth, but wasn't really properly looked at because a quarry. Um, the following week of searching. Turned up nothing. And the police kind of moved on a bit to fear that this is maybe a bit more than a missing persons case. Yeah, We need to have a bit of a look into this. Um, and the fact that there's a complete lack of evidence. This murder's been thought about. 
somebody's not in the heat of a moment killed somebody at the side of the road and then disposed of a body for nobody to find. The disposing of a body in in a way where nobody's going to find it is so rare in the cases that I certainly the ones that we talk about yeah. bodies and I we've just done some recordings recently where it's kind of uh, what did Ali say is in the land it's like clopristolite it's the the lack of a body. There's only twenty one cases in UK history where a, a trial has gone on where the body hasn't been present or has been identified where it was. It's that corpus delitum, um, and a load of people seem to think up until around, I think it was around about the 1950s, that no body, no crime. Mm. But that's not a thing. But, you know, to actually physically get rid of a body is really, really difficult. You know, you think of the acid bath murders and all that kind of stuff. They still found evidence of the hairs down the, the drains. So there's been some planning put into this. Or some complete fuck wittery. You know, <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> One of the interesting things that did come forward from the police investigations and the appeal uh, for, for information was a witness came forward to say that on the night that it happened, he had seen what looked like a farmer dragging a sheep carcass in the fire break between the trees towards Delmagari Quarry. But there's a couple of things to note about that. In November, just south of Inverness, it's pitch black at four o'clock in the afternoon. So dragging it at night, is a, a big time frame. That could be anything. And I don't know how farmers work. Is there, if there's, although we have no natural predators in Scotland, would they remove the sheep? If they found a dead sheep at night when they were out checking their flock, would they just remove it then? Probably. They're not going to want disease and stuff going through there. So to me, there's every reason for the police to go, there's a farmer dragging the sheep. That's what this guy's seen. But again, it is night. And was that a woman wearing a sheepskin coat? Possibly. Dalmagari Quarry is an easy place for fly tipping, an easy place for getting rid of a sheep, an easy place to get rid of a body. So that is really um, the investigation for the first eight months. That's all we have. After eight months, they decide that maybe they should go back to Dalmagari Quarry and have a proper look. So they hire in a bulldozer and they start digging up the land. Detective Sergeant John Cathcart, whilst removing some topsoil, was greeted with a strong, rotting smell. He was fairly convinced it was a corpse and continued digging by hand, but was ordered to stop by a senior officer, as the bulldozer they had was only on hire for that day and they had to take it back. (laughs) They are trying to solve a murder case and the guy's worried about an extra couple of hundred quid for the bulldozer hire. What did they? What did they spend recently on the Cory McKee case? Because they went through the the rubbish for months and months. That, that, that was millions, wasn't it? Oh, millions and millions. Yeah. Whereas here they're worried about uh, a bulldozer hire. Wow. And to be honest, now that I'm thinking about it out loud, he wasn't using the do- bulldozer. He was digging by hand at this point. But yeah. maybe he was the only one that was allowed to drive the bulldozer. They hadn't paid for the second person insurance or whatever it is you do. <laughs> so what happened next? They stopped digging, and they went away. Bulldozer got off hired, they didn't get a charge, and that was it. After about two years of investigation into this woman and this child's uh, disappearance, the investigation is wound down and left to be what I think is the saddest case. It's a cold case. Yeah. And as there always is with these things, uh, there are many speculations as to what happened. And the consensus is that these two 
uh, this young woman and her very young child were murdered. But what was happened to the body? Were they dragged up and dumped in the quarry as was seen that night? Were they hidden under the A9, which was undergoing some un- upgrading at the time? Well, we'll never really know, I suppose, but a local farmer is convinced that they were put under the A9 to the point where he got his really scientific method of divining rods out and marked the A9 with a yellow circle where he said they were. He even went on to commission ground-penetrating radar studies. They didn't come back that his divining rods were correct. <laughs> Let's just put that that way. <laughs> so, so obviously the police took no notice, dismissed it. No, eccentric, I think, is probably yeah. the way they would have seen him. Which is fair enough, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So the case sits cold with nothing going on until 2004, when an episode of Unsolved, which was made by Grampian Television, was aired on Scottish TV. That in sparked intrigue in the in the public again, and the Scottish government put up some money for the case to be reviewed. £122,000 was spent excavating the quarry, and over the course of three weeks, 20,000 tonnes of earth from the quarry had been excavated, and 2,000 trees were removed, and they found some rubbish, a guy's t-shirt, and some animal bones. That's all. That's all they found. Until 2018, when Rini's sister Morag makes a fresh public appeal. And things start to get a bit stirred up again. They're like, well, this is, you know, we're coming up in 40 years since this happened and everything. So the police decide that they're going to drain Lednach Quarry. Just interestingly, why pick this case to suddenly spend all this money on when the you know, police forces are stuck on resources? Why suddenly spend this amount of money just on a forlorn hope? I suppose there must be a... There must be a right that they have to try and close every case that they possibly can. Mm. And to me, technology goes on a bit. That if they find something, the technology we have now compared to the late 1970s would allow them to progress much, much further. But I, I get what you're saying, but I suppose a lot of that comes from public outcry, doesn't it? Yeah. Where, where we see mad amounts of money being spent and huge amount of public interest is on cases where I go, I've got no interest in that. It's usually because either the families involved in it are very, very good at the media yeah. or um, somebody's done some sweet-ass research and gone, you need to look at this. Mm. So it comes from either um, hard-headed public pushing or somebody going, I think you need to look at this. Yeah. And in this case, I think it's probably the, the 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 previous. I think it's a bit of, more of public pressure that they want to have a look into this again because for a case to sit cold for forty years with a missing persons is nuts. Like that just shouldn't happen in a country of what six million people. Yeah. It, it, don't get me wrong. Scotland is rural, but yeah. it's not the outback. So for somebody to go missing for that time, something has a closure. I think is probably where I'm getting to there. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and the police decide that they're going to drain Lednach Quarry, which was one of the quarries that the divers went in. Now, I, I've scuba dived for years. I wouldn't want to scuba dive in a quarry. It's A, bogging. Mm. And you just wouldn't see it. These guys are diving by feel. Mm. So for them to find something in what would have been a dump, it's an underwater rubbish tip. There was ne- they were never going to find something as divers. So they decide to drain it. It's something mad like 14 days it takes to pump the water out of it. Wow. It's millions and millions and millions of litres of water that they're pumping out of this. 
it it gets emptied and it gets reported in the news that bones and a pushchair wheel is found at the bottom. The through the silt at the bottom of it by hand, and they pull out this silver cross wheel, which is identified as the one that Rini used for Andrew. Wow. And some human bones. Peace forensics take a look at it all, and they're pretty certain that this is of um, one of the McCrae's and the pram that has gone missing. So in 2019, a 77-year-old man is arrested in Penrith in England in connection with the deaths of Rini and Andrew McCrae. He is not named, and the Proculator Fiscal puts it back to them saying this is weak evidence. Please do a bit more looking into it. And as we sit here today, Bill McDowell is being held at a prison in Edinburgh due to stand in court at the end of November 2022, having been charged with two counts of murder and one count of perverting the course of justice. So he he was the man in Penrith. He was the man that was having enough there. He was the man in Penrith. Yeah. He was the the man whose wife stood up for him and gave him an alibi. And he's the man that is now out on bail or in a court. Is he? Is he I can't actually remember now. I, I read it earlier. Either way, he's been arrested mm. and he was due to stand trial in 2020. But of course, the wee pandemic thing happened, didn't it? Uh, so he didn't stand trial, but he is now due in court at the end of this year. And I will come back to you and let you know what the verdict is. Her mother and father, who are now dead, will never know what happened to them. Gordon McRae, who is her first husband, who she was estranged from, like I said, they were friends. He put up a reward money. He, he would have been in bits about this. The real victims here are obviously the two that were killed, but the, the standing victims today are Morag and Gordon mm. and the people who loved her around them. If it is found to have been Bill or anybody else, they've just lived this life thinking they're getting away with it scot-free. And it's it boils my blood. It really does. It, yeah, it's the thought of all those birthdays, all those celebrations that they went through that, yep. that the family missed out on, didn't they? All those celebrations. It's... So there you go. There is the longest missing persons case in Scotland, which happened miles, not millions, but just a few miles from where we are sat now. And do you know what? I think um, between us, we should go down to the um, the court in Edinburgh. Um, yeah, try and catch a couple of days of those, that trial. I, I'd be very, very interested just to see the dynamics of that trial. Of what goes on, yeah, yeah. We can. I mean, it's you know, it will be open to the public, um, or we could certainly go down and. Yeah, I'd be keen to do that, and and I can pretty get a seat. I can just say that I'm the 37th most popular UK true crime podcaster. I'm bound to get a front row seat. We broke 200 the other day, so you know, wow. impressive stuff, Bob. Top 200. Um, you know, we're getting there in life. <laughs> you went ahead of true crime and cutting the grass. Are you ahead of those now? Uh, no, because how could I? How could I even live with myself if I thought I was better than that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's the date. We we'll definitely go down and we'll report from outside the court. We'll do. We'll we'll do a recording from there. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. I did. It's a really interesting case, and like you say, where we are today, my house in Pitlockery, it's right on the A nine. So it's it's literally in this location, isn't it? That Something happens. Yeah, and that's one thing that we always, you know, we probably would say that we've lent on Scottish cases more with Twisted Britain than, than, than other UK-wide cases, but that's probably because Ali and I go, that's interesting and it's just there. Mm. 
um, when you came down and joined us in the settle in, we were talking beforehand and afterwards yeah. um, that one of the most, well, the thing that I love most about that pub is it's 300 years old. And one of the cases we've told before was a guy called Alan Mayer. And Alan Mayer was a horrible, horrible wife beater of a man. And he mm. used to go to the pub, the closest pub to his house. And he would go there, but he'd leave his wife locked on a box wow. as he went out. This is a late 1700s, early 1800s kind of time. But he was then hanged within 100 meters of his own house, within 200 meters of the pub. And we sat there telling the tale one night. And I went, do you know where the closest pub to his house would have been? We're signing it right now. And it's that kind of connection to history and connection to these stories that we're talking about that kind of grab Ali and I's interest. I mean, it must be the same for you. When you're looking at cases, you must go, this one has to interest me or I'm not, what's the point in reading about it? Absolutely. So I, I like, um, some podcast, I like yours. Obviously, I like stuff like Scottish murders. Have you listened to that podcast? Wonderful, wonderful podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's really focusing on something they know and passionately care about. It's, that's one of the reasons, um, Though some of our colleagues cover cases in the US and elsewhere in the world exceptionally well, it's just not something that interests me in the same way as the UK. And for me, the cases I choose, I always find if it interests me, I think it's going to interest other people, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, or I bet nobody's heard two drunk men in a pub talk about this before. And that's where we go for it. Anyway. <laughs> well, talking of drunk men in the pub, uh, Bob, are we uh, almost done? I'm, I'm good to go. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks for inviting me into your podcast. Oh, thanks for having us. Um, I'll leave you with a thank you. Love you. Bye. <laughs>